When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Yusum, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Giro Lazan about his new book, Honor Thy Label Dr. Bronner's Unconventional Journey to a Clean, Green, and Ethical Supply Chain. Giro Lazan is the Vice President of Special Operations at Dr. Bronner's, the top selling brand of soaps in North America. After joining the company in 2005, he helped its transition to sourcing all major ingredients directly from certified fair trade and organic projects built from scratch and supplied by small scale farms. Under his leadership, Dr. Bronner's has become a pathfinder in the global movement to establish socially just and environmentally responsible supply chains. Hassan holds a master's in physics and a doctorate in environmental science and engineering, and he's a regular speaker on business, sustainability, Fair Trade, and Regenerative Organic Agriculture. Welcome to New Books. Thanks for having me, Susan. Yeah, this is a, one, a great book. It's such an interesting and engaging story, and it's a, you know, it's a guide to sustainability and socially responsible business and how a company lives its values, but there's also an interesting thread about you as an individual and how you've lived your own values through your work. And it's lovely how these two threads kind of come together in the book. What was it like writing the book and going through and revisiting all these stories and these really engaged, interesting projects you've led? Oh, it's it's just the usual cliche about about writing. There were parts that went really well, and this the the copy just flew out of my fingers. And then there were days where I knew I had to write something, but I wasn't in, inspired. But the process overall of revisiting essentially my, my entire life in a way or important portions of that. That was really enjoyable. And I had a, a few people participating, in, including my wife, Crystal, who's been on this journey with me ever since, and some of my, my teammates. And I'd say 85% joy and also review and analysis of what we did, and then minimum fifteen percent pain, if if not twenty. It, it it's just just the the usual. You you have to be inspired to write things like this down, and it's it's not a novel. And I try to make it narrative because just writing about a subject like this can get really dry really fast, and nobody's going to read it. I, I just knew. Plus, I, I, I this was my one shot at telling part of the story of my life, which otherwise nobody would care for. So it was just a great opportunity to a little bit of, an, of a semi-autobiography. So I, overall, I liked it, but I think I'll not do this again. It could be very dry. It could just be about supply chains and logistics, but it's certainly not that. It's kind of a wild ride, it's these stories. <laughs> it, it was, and this was, this was important to me. It, it was clear, and that's, that's my style a little bit. I'm, I'm a skeptic. And I, I have looked at a couple of books written about companies, 
And there's hardly ever mention of failure, for instance. And I, I thought, I, I want to be honest about what we did, and it worked out. I, I get quite a few comments from friends and, and business associates, and they many of them say, wow, this is great that you actually bothered to talk about your failures and not just gloss it over and made it all sound great, which it isn't. It, it was just a lot of work and a lot of things went wrong. So I, I like that people responded to the, the honesty. Of course, I don't talk about the worst failures so much, right? There was some censorship involved. And, and those people who didn't properly behave, they, they get a pretty mild treatment too. It's not about, you know, um, balancing the accounts here. But it was about giving an idea of the, the challenges you have on the ground, of which there are plenty. Because it also explains why not so many other companies do that, notably large ones who operate under severe constraints when they buy in developing countries. And so I, I just wanted to be honest and, and clear about that so people that get involved know what they're getting involved in. Yeah, and I think that comes through. That was one of the parts that was so enjoyable was the honesty about failure and the lessons learned, and it really gave a sense of the work being part of just ongoing learning and application of what you got from that project to this project. Yep. Though, of course, every project is going to be completely unique. And it's... Yep. yep. Well, before we dive into some of those stories, if we, for our listeners who don't aren't familiar with Dr. Bronner's, can you give a sense of the company and what it does is a soap maker, but it's certainly a lot more than that. It has a really interesting origin story. So, and who yeah. is Dr. Bronner? <laughs> it's, it's, it's the origin. Ultimately, we are Dr. Bronner's, the modern company founded in California in, we, we say around 1948. It has been making soap in its fifth generation now. So it, its roots, as far as we know, as far as gravestones go, roots are in, in southern Germany. A German-Jewish soap-making family started in 1858 in Laupheim. And then next generation became very successful. But the, the founder of our company, Emanuel Bronner or Dr. Bronner, didn't get along with his dad in Germany and got out before the Nazis even came to power in 1929 and just worked in as a consultant in the soap industry, mostly in the Midwest, but had a tick that he wanted to use soap to save the world. He, he was on a mission relatively early on. Now this, this was before his parents were killed by the Nazis in 42, 44. So there was trauma there and probably motivated, made him even more eccentric. But he just had this idea that by making a good product and talking about it, you could change the world. And he started this pretty early without internet and fax machines, wrote letters to President Eisenhower to stop the development of nuclear weapons. He wrote to Albert Einstein and wanted to get him engaged. And so he just had his own network of enticing people to be responsible in a language that wouldn't speak to modern people. It did in the 60s. So he usually spoke before crowds of, of hippies 
and had a huge, he was rather successful. And the soap that he made, back then only one flavor, peppermint, was versatile enough so you could take it to Woodstock, wash your dog, do the dishes, brush your teeth if you had no toothpaste. And that just gave it this, this really funny reputation in the United States, but it was still a small company directly selling through co-ops. And then his son and his son's wife put the company on firm footing. Emmanuel was not a businessman and was close to, to bankruptcy. And, and then he was blind too, which really didn't help. So his, his, uh, the, these two really put in the 90s the company on firm ground, slow growth, mostly a niche product, well-known. And then his grandsons, Mike and David, came on board around 2000, and they wanted to take the mandate to use that soap to clean the world, so to speak. They got serious about it, but with modern tools. So Mike had, for instance, worked in Japan, knew Japanese, knew there were countries other than the United States, for instance, and developed international marketing. And David is the person who mostly developed the mission and looked at what, what is it that we can do with, with our profits. And they implemented rules that just minimize the amount of money that the executives can take out. There's a cap of five to one highest paid executive to lowest paid warehouse worker, no dividend paid. So that just blocks any benefits or, or calves benefits that the owners, Mike and David, can take out. And it leaves a lot of money to play with. And that's what they've been doing ever, ever since. And we, right now, I think we give around 7% of our revenues, out of net revenues, to activism and charity, and that covers a whole range that by itself would just max out our, our time here. Um, as far as our work goes on raw materials, that's not even charity. We always say this is COX, cost of, um, cost of goods produced, and it was the mandate to shift to sources of coconut oil, palm oil, mint oil, olive oil, that are organic and fair trade certified. That was the mandate back then. We wanted to know that the production of our ingredients, agricultural, that they have leave a beneficial impact, significant, as much as one can do that. And so organic and fair was the idea. It was a really silly idea because those products didn't exist at the time. Organic existed, but organic is somewhat meaningless when it comes to faraway countries because you have no insight into what it's how, how they're being produced you, you buy through brokers and have no access really to the source and fair trade had that promise at the time though there were not even standards for our ingredient there was fair trade for coffee and cocoa and sugar but none for for fatty oils so we decided to build our own first factory in Sri Lanka to just make our own oil and then a new standard, fair trade standard evolved that allowed the production of almost anything, fair trade, but with somewhat with a somewhat broader picture, not just focusing on these major commodities. So this is what we did in starting in 2007. We built our factory in Sri Lanka, which I, I, uh, this was my job, right? I hadn't done this before. 
And I had only two good friends, business people in Sri Lanka on the ground who I had trust in. And then I had a whole bunch of friends in Germany who had run an oil mill, who were architects and knew how to start businesses like this. So I recruited friends for little to no money to help me out build that first factory. And it's, it's, a, it's a serious factory. You know, there's 300 people working there now. There's now 1,200 farmers. You had to convert those to organic agriculture. And then you build a fair trade system around it and spend a premium. I think we're now at around $200,000 a year on community development projects. Great concepts. And it, it took a while to get it all up to speed. But that's then what we did again in Ghana for palm oil, some more again for coconut oil, and in India for mint oils. So those are projects that we run, own, or are the biggest customer and thereby have quite some impact on what happens. And my team were nine people now, special operations were called. We visit quite a bit, not so much in the last year and a half, but uh, it's going to start back up. But that's, that's the work we do is to help the teams on the ground, which we built, they're local teams, there's no permanent white guys on the ground. We support them in what's needed to run a business. And they're usually not trained in that, so leadership is a, is a real big issue. And I think this is the thing we're, we're proudest of is to have been able to build teams that are motivated by what we do. It's this thing of intrinsic motivation. I just read it in an article. It seems to be pretty important. It's just, just to make sure that people actually think that what they do is meaningful. And that just has a huge impact on how, how they work and perform. So we've done this a few times. And... In that process, we've also changed the way agriculture is done. So it's it's organic plus, one could say, and now called regenerative, meaning it's not just about not spraying, but it's about restoring soil for several reasons. One is resilience, the other one is better productivity, and the third is soil being able to participate in the sequestration of greenhouse gases, and though hopefully... Uh, countering or help countering climate change. So that's that's really the, the, the company, where it came from. So we're fully in line with what Emmanuel in the 40s couldn't have even conceived of, but would be highly approving of if he were still around him. Yeah, his original idea of all one, you know, unity among different peoples of the world has been, it seems like the new leadership it's just a lot more alive and well than ever and taken on this even richer understanding of interconnection with communities and food systems and it's, people. It's it's that, and, you know, it sounds cliche oftentimes, but honestly, that's that's the part I, I enjoy most, this really casual, business-driven cooperation with people with good humor and, and still rules. It's There need to be rules in, in business, so... you. I don't need to do this, but of course there are people in projects that steal or don't behave properly and have to be fired. And that you do. You're, you're fair. Fairness is clear, but you, you can't just put up with anything. For example, right? So fair trade projects aren't projects where everything goes. Definitely not because you would not stand a chance unless you run a project that's, that's honest and people are motivated and reasonably, reasonably well behaved. There's, there's no perfection there, but it's that interconnectedness 
in the good and the bad that that we like a lot and honestly when we're visiting these projects we're, we're in the in the village we, we don't stay in a, in a town and hotels we're on the grounds because it's that immediacy of the interaction to just talk about issues that come up openly make sure you get feedback find a collaborative solution under sometimes really difficult circumstances and it's that's that connectedness is, is what i really like it's a personal contact with with people but you don't stand a chance unless unless you do that and and, and work and are the boss of people so that's that's been the biggest learning and i always think that's what i wanted but how do you how do you get there easily you know usually you're a tourist when you travel early you're still a tourist whatever you were and in this case i i like being in factories or at the mill or in, in a field when I visit. I, I hardly travel in those countries because it's our, our job to be on the ground and it's actually pretty enjoyable. Just just regular work day, just a little warmer and, and more humid. And then the electricity sometimes goes out or internet isn't quite so good, but it's just, it's super enjoyable. Yeah, because there's a, you say in the book, you don't want to just create islands of happiness in a sea of misery. And that, that seems intrinsic to the, the approach that you take. And, and I think a lot of companies would definitely shy away with fear from doing that and working in different cultures and how easy it is to make a mistake and missteps. And it feels like there's a sort of a, a humbleness and fearlessness around going into new places and making friends and understanding how things work and setting up systems. I'm, I'm curious what drives like, you know, what, what drives the company to move past that fear, legal fears or financial fears and follow these paths, which the results obviously show that it works, but it takes a certain headspace. It, it, it does. And what is it? I, I think it's the, the goal is completely goal-driven. So David Bonner, he's, he's, he's like this. He's a visionary. He doesn't always bother to think about the trouble and the details, but that's good. Otherwise, you wouldn't do this. If, if you would look at the liabilities that you may run into, you may not start. And I was no expert on oil milling. So it's a certain trust, a childish trust, that you can do things that are usually not done this way, but that gave me a huge amount of freedom. And I, I wasn't bound by rules as to how to behave properly. You learn those on the ground really fast. So my, my learning curve in Sri Lanka in the first year or two was really steep. I, I tend to be trusting. I know that the world is full of rascals, but I tend to be trusting until Gordon, our partner in Sri Lanka, just updated me on all the stuff. He's 75 now and has just seen all kinds of scandals in, in Sri Lanka. It's just really common that people cheat each other, particular bigger companies. And I always thought he was paranoid, but he wasn't. And I learned a lot from him. And what I've tried to do and my partners is just to be open to the fact that people may not exactly do what they say, but still not let that get in the way of, you know, of, of first extending some some trust and the Browners have always done the same with me you know you look at the numbers ultimately these are companies that are subsidized a little in that dr Browners 
pays a higher price for the product, right? But there's not ongoing money flowing into this, right? I uh, try to conceive those companies as something that can stand on its own. We do get grants for campaigns that help extend, you know, dynamic agroforestry or social programs. Or right now we're developing a waste collection program in Ghana. So for those things, I go to get grants. I, I like German donor agencies. They, they seem to like what we do. So it's, it's matching grants. But I, I didn't want the Brauners to continue footing a bill for what that project meant. So it was a commercial entity. And I realized quickly you have to find other customers. So we sell to Rapunzel, coconut oil and palm oil. And we're expanding that from India. We sell all kinds of herbs, Gaia herbs, an American uh, nutritional supplement supplier has started buying Tulsi from us and chamomile. So it's really fun to diversify depending on what the projects allow and engage with other customers, take those to the reality of the projects and the other way around, take the young, primarily young managers of these projects also to the West to see what what it looks like out there. And I think that's a great way of creating connections between both sides. And that's something that oftentimes small scale producers in developing countries miss. But the idea for them to produce something for export is is almost silly. Because how, how can you do that? It's, it's so difficult to sell in the West. And then you need to develop relationships this demand on prices, quantities, and so on and on. So all, all that we, we had to learn, it's got to fit somehow in this globalized economy and hold on to its mandate of, of fairness and sustainability and then just figure out what exactly that means on the ground for each crop and for each project. And there's a human piece of all these projects that you talk about when you, in the book is divided into the bigger projects and you talk about how they started and evolved. And one of the things that comes through is working with people. And you mentioned that bringing in new managers or new leaders and empowering people in the communities that you're working in to learn new skills and help with training. And then there's often a project where you're actually providing other resources needed, like in one of the projects, getting menstrual supplies for women in the community or who are working there. And there's this really, um, you know, complex and intricated and responsive to whatever the needs that arise in that community. That's probably the most interesting piece of mm-hmm. the, the human piece of these stories. Yep. That's it, it is, you need to be open to what's to, to the conditions and, and the needs and then figure out, can you do anything about this? And there you have to be humble and there's just, no, no point in, in setting the goals too high or trying to do something that doesn't have the support of the local community. You need to have that. Otherwise, it's just not going to be accepted. You cannot force people to accept. And so the, the menstrual support, you know, where Julia, our teammate, when she came back from maternity, she said, okay, I'd like to focus a little on projects that benefit women. And in India menstrual hygiene is a disaster in the villages right? because women have no access, affordable access that doesn't cause a disposal problem. I, I think that summarizes it up. And then there's the taboo and the shame and everything else. And watching her and the team Julia built to find a solution that was acceptable to the women technically and wasn't 
blocked by anybody in the community was and, and do it's got to be cost effective so initially we thought oh well, maybe it should be done from straw in the village right to create jobs and you realize that doesn't work for many reasons and ultimately we bought something that's washable last two years costs two dollars a piece and pro- provides freedom for years and it, it took a while and then it was accepted i'm very very impressed and, and, and proud of this project and there was a tailwind because the prime minister had said, yes, this is a real important thing. We need to tackle it. But Mr. Modi's approaches to solving problems is not always that convincing. right? So I was just really impressed how Julia pulled this off. But for that, you need to look at the sweet spot and figure out, is this going to work? So we, we learned over time which of those projects work and which ones are just are silly ideas by westerners as to what it should be like or, or silly ideas by locals too so it's it's really interesting you have to watch and listen to people and see what's what's needed and you have to be willing to intervene if ideas are too silly or you see that people try to benefit themselves right? all this you need to you need to watch with projects like this but it's just so empowering to see that with a few 10 grand you can just do amazing things and it's really nice yeah that's what makes the case study so interesting to read. There's such an, in, one ingredient has this whole web of stories and people mm-hmm. and projects woven mm-hmm. into it. And I think let's go back to the idea of um, serendipity and being responsive, because that's a thread that moves through all of the projects. And I think it's safe to say most companies would not use serendipity as a guiding principle in any way. Um, but it seems to be a thread and embraced still at Bronner's and can you say a little more about that and how um, that yeah how that weaves through your work and the, the trust that that entails I it just just the way we started these projects <clears throat> we didn't use specific numeric goals but you, you just cannot do I'm, I'm not a, I'm a physicist but I like to apply metrics where they fit and with money that works pretty well and there's certain others but the kind of stuff that we set out to do, we had no idea. We, we had somewhat of a goal, but how to get there, there were just so many loops you had to do and barriers. And there, you simply open your radar screen and are really open to who comes along, people, technical ideas. And that's become, I think, a guiding theme to, to us and all the projects too, is you need to be open for opportunities and I remember back in Germany, opportunism was a bad word. And I, I just thought about this. Uh, what, why is it not? Because we are opportunists, utter opportunists. I think opportunism is great as long as you don't clash with the values you bring in, right? As long as you stick with that, there's nothing wrong with looking for opportunities. And if you think they are in line you just run really fast and i think this is this has been a theme the people we met the ideas we came across on the journey and you just cannot plan that but you have to be super open and listen to what your colleagues your teammates your partners on the ground what they say and then you have to be open that they may be right and you may be wrong and 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 vice versa it's trivial. I, I don't think there's anything, but it's just open the concept of openness. And I think good businessmen apply that. But this obsession with planning and, and quantifying and measuring may be good for other industries, but for those, it gets in the way. We do have goals, certain goals, but you need to be prepared to just 
throw those out immediately. Like last year in COVID, there were all kinds of goals we didn't need at all. But then there were others that came in. There were opportunities that were offered through COVID. And I, I've learned this, and it, it's, it's helped my life too. Otherwise, you get depressed if you constantly worry about the goals and you just can't meet them. I, th- I think it, it uh, interferes with your creativity if you do that. So serendipity is, in the, is part of the name of three of our projects. There's Surrender Pole, which is uh, co- coconut. The, it's, it's the happy coconut, Surrender Palm, Surrender Cocoa. And it, it just symbolizes the fact that much of what we did had just serendipity in it as a major drive. Not alone, of course. You can't just rely on serendipity. But it's that combination right, of determination to get somewhere and you know roughly where you're going, how exactly, who knows. And there's also a thread of um, soul that comes through reading the stories. And you meant, you talk about psychoanalysis and also somewhat psych- psychedelics. And, and I'm wondering like how that approach or orientation contributes to, within the organization, your own work, ways of knowing or ways of creating or ways of approaching a problem. Because I think what's so like the, the lessons in the book are often about a certain approach to a challenge and how how it's actually being responsive to serendipity or being resp- or being responsive to humans. And, mm-hmm. and I think just what you were saying about, you know, there's a flip side to being exploitive or being responsive. And I think that probably comes from you yourself being open and trustworthy and not just, you know, and vulnerable on some level. Yes. It's, it's been critical to performance and that's the same for, for all, teammates that that a rigid structure that just looks at processes and and results it, actually it doesn't work anywhere not not just not just in in tropical countries and that's really the that's the company culture on the bottle right this is what emmanuel has preached in reality of course you always fall short so we had a period you know we've grown by, I think, average of 15% over the last 20 years. We've grown massively. When I started, we had 28 people and now we're 300 at just at headquarters. Right? On top of this, there's seven, 800 people that work on, on our projects. And there, there were times where the, the need to con- be considerate to your colleagues, you know, got somewhat sidelined at times. Let's put it this way. And the focus wasn't so much on humans, but you just don't stand a chance unless you keep people happy. These kind of companies cannot work. I believe many fail for that reason is that you need in your day-to-day operations, you need to be respectful. You need to motivate people. You shouldn't yell at them unless they really, really, really deserve it. And so all, all these things, Dr. Braun actually in the last 10 years, we had to relearn on a larger scale. And in that respect, I, I think I'm very much in line with what the company does. And I just have to apply this to settings that are a little more exotic than Vista, California. But it's, it's really about respecting. That's part of the soul. The soul goes a little beyond it in that we, we deal with things such as you know, the use of psychedelics for therapeutic treatment. This is one of our, of David Bronner's pet campaigns, activist 
campaigns. So we, we do look at the soul of the country or the world as a whole and what needs to be done to heal it. I, I don't want to get too new agey here in my in my speech. I, I don't like it so much, but it, that's that's really the, the mandate is to go beyond just making soap and then giving some money to charity. It's really about actively supporting causes at standard chance of helping the world getting out of some of its its misery. And so that's that's what both Dr. Browners, the headquarters itself, and our projects try to do in very different social settings. And that's again, that's what's inspiring it and that's what makes these projects um, ultimately effective. And and the people who we had to fire, we had to fire management in, in two projects. And those were people who didn't get it ultimately. They were not even evil. They just thought these projects were about them or about making money. And they didn't get what it was all about. And that's just, I think that just shows what you need to have. You, you want to work with people that get what you want to do. And then you step back and more and more teams on the ground run their own show. You have to help and find customers, design new equipment, or just keep an eye on on, on things in, in the fair trade program. But it's ultimately with an open heart is just to let people take over and always keep an eye on it and making sure that there's enough support. And you talk a little about that interesting dynamic between creating cooperation and trust, but then also at times having to step in and be mindful of the business. And I think that is informed a lot by your own upbringing. And we should it'd be interesting to hear your point of view on being born in Germany when you were in the social political mm-hmm. environment you were, you were in and why you left that and what you know what you how this has been an evolution from that thinking yeah it's i I think it's a it's a real natural one and i'm i'm one of not that many who who managed to be able to stick with the the crazy ideas that came up when i was 12 or 13 where you realize there's something wrong in germany way too many old nazis still in administration in in business and my parents weren't lefties, they were more liberal, but I think value-oriented and just the desire to have this place work a little better than it did. It was just very strong with me. So as a kid, you know, you, you play with socialism and read the Mao Bible and, and whatever and think, well, this sounds like a really good concept. And then over time, you realize that there's trouble with that. And I, I became a big fan of business once I realized you can get stuff done without having to go all the way to the top through politics. I've always liked guerrilla style in a way to try to get things done on, on a relatively low level. And I guess this work allows me to do all that. It's really nice that the stuff we do on the ground is what I felt strongly about in my teens. And I never quite knew how this would happen. There were times when I came here to the U.S., I, I thought, okay, maybe environmental consulting is as good as it gets. You can just help people clean up their wastewater or so. But it, was never, it wasn't satisfying. I, I wanted to have an impact, but I'm not interested in politics. I, I, you have to lie in, in politics really, really bad. And that I just I couldn't see myself do that. And so using business to implement simple ideas to me seemed like, the way to have an impact and, and dr Bronos does that in a way too through making soap so that's that's really the model is to use a commercial activity 
in order to change the world, it doesn't happen automatically. You need to be committed to that. You need to be willing to write off essentially all of your profits and be willing to commit this to either paying your workers better and or contribute to social causes. And once you do that, though, you, there's a huge amount of things you can, you can do. It's not without problems in Vista, California or in, in Ghana. You've, you've got the trouble either way, but there's a great potential simply by engaging in business. By, by buying from farmers, by employing people on fair terms, but you always need to set that at, at the top almost, right? Once you start looking only at, at money, it's trivial, but that's I'm, I'm, I'm watching it. If you were to just look at profitability, you would be making compromises really, really fast. And then ultimately you'd lose your, your mission and the rest would only be marketing. That's what... It- when you read through the, the stories in the book, it seems like how much more complicated can we make this project? What more can we layer into it? And what more, how much more can we accomplish? Like I love the olive oil story in Palestine is so incredible, especially when you think about where Bronner's is located in California. There's an amazing supply of organic California olive oil, very easy to, for you to source through a distributor. Yet you embarked on this very dynamic, complex, fraught project and um, and it has a beautiful ending, I think, or beginning. Can you say, tell beginning. us about the Palestine and the olive oil sourcing story? So there, one, one needs to consider the, the history of the family as a Jewish-German family. Uh, funnily, no, nobody alive is Jewish except the, the son of one of Emanuel Bronner's sisters who moved to a kibbutz. She immigrated. Everybody else is Christian or non-religious but there is just a very very strong feeling about the misery in the unholy land right this is just not a great situation so we looked at where can you buy your olive oil and you can you can buy decent organic olive oil in tunisia or everywhere else but we wanted fair trade now israel is tricky because israel doesn't really need fair trade right it's a it's a there's nothing wrong with paying farmers better but it didn't meet our requirements for fair trade. So the West Bank is just a perfect example. And there we were very lucky, this was serendipity, to find our friend Nasser, a Palestinian who had studied anthropology and, and PhD in it in Madison, Wisconsin, and said, I want to go back home and apply the concepts of fair trade to my homeland. And he didn't know anything about it, but he's an organizer. So he just ultimately put together a huge structure with 1500 farmers, a processing operation that makes olive oil, but now also couscous, dried tomatoes, capers, just a whole range of things and has a social impact in it. And to him, it was more about meaning and purpose and cultural identity as an anthropologist. Of course, you have to do that. And Yes, people ask us, well, why don't you just buy why don't you just buy locally? Why don't you just buy organic olive oil in the United States, in, in California? Because we think we want to have an impact. We don't just want to buy to show that there's a nice label on there, but we love having an impact through the work and there's no better place, not as many places, but the West Bank definitely is such a place where you can do that, where you can give people pride under, you know, sometimes very, very 
constrained situation. So it was the, the personal relationship. It's the beauty of the lands. The West Bank is a beautiful place. And, and then it's Nasser's determination and that of the team and just watch a whole group of people just take over, just like we do it as a, as a privately owned company. It's important. It's not a co-op. Our companies aren't co-ops. They're privately owned and their responsibility is to get their ingredients and make them in a fair and sustainable way. And that's really what what unites our, our thinking and Nasser has done a fantastic job in doing this under really, really difficult circumstances. And so, yes, we could buy it here. It would be much cheaper. Nasser's oil is among the, the, the most expensive ones and we just turn it into soap. That's that's almost a crime. Right? We have to refine it so all the, the flavor, the good flavor is gone. But we think that's more important than supporting local California farmers, even though we love local but in cases like this, you just go where you can have an impact. Well, we've been talking about, um, there's a lot of words around products and food that people hear, but there's a lot of misunderstanding around them. And there's a couple that we've mentioned. And one is that you've gotten into recently is chocolate. And I think it's worth saying more about chocolate because I don't think there's an understanding of the, um, the need for fair trade chocolate and the amount of slavery that still exists around chocolate production. And I think people, it would be enlightening for you to say a little more about what you found as you dug deeper into the world of chocolate when you start sourcing for your mm -hmm. chocolate bars. It's, it's a funny story how the chocolate came about. You know, we, we went into Ghana in 2007 to produce organic and fair trade palm oil because we use it in our bar soap for technical reasons, not because it's cheap. We've made this point many times. So how, how, do, you, how do you get this? It's, um, it's, it's not that difficult. You, you, have to, you have to work with smallholders, right? The, the current way palm oil is made, 95% of it is, no, not 95%, but that's what ends up mostly in commodity products, is, is made in plantations that were planted on clear-cut, often burned lands and destroyed everything in the way. So that's not super ecological. And it's a, it's a huge monoculture of often tens of thousands of acres. So that wasn't going to be ours. There's enough smallholder farmers in Ghana. And we now have 600 who produce oil palm. And that's how we started. So we had our first organic and fair trade palm oil in 2009 and then it turns out that of course there were other crops going around it including cocoa and first we ignored them because they're spraying right there's there's very little organic and uh, cocoa production in ghana for a bunch of reasons including the the government hands out pesticides for free and then there was rapunzel in germany and they said don't you want to convert your farmers to organic and we started doing this and we realized how difficult it is and then this was 2012 16 then we realized the lousy economics of cocoa meaning that the price that's it's, it's a world's price driven by demand and supply was super low and that most farmers couldn't make money so this was a first recognition then you realize they, they don't grow all that efficiently. They plant it much too densely. They don't do much maintenance. So all that needed to be changed for yields to double is, is, is the goal. And you need to do that in order to bring in better revenues in a situation where the price is low. 
And so we did this and then came in regenerative agriculture and this concept of mixed agroforestry as a way to address pest issues while at the same time improving um, output and, and fertility. And we've been playing with it. This is for us, this was just one way of experimenting and seeing how can you improve the, the agroecology of the situation. And as we were doing this and, and went for um, regenerative certification, regenerative organic, so when Mike and David Bronner said, hey, come on, you, you don't need to sell these beans to Rapunzel. I think we should do chocolate with the goal to have a chocolate that is made from ingredients that are regenerative and that means looking at both social and at ecological aspects in the production and of the social aspects, the one that everybody in the West knows, child labor is a real big one. And child labor, we're, we're demystifying it a little bit, right? There's the reports about massive abductions of kids that are led into slavery in parts of West Africa. That's about one percent of the overall show. The reality, though, is that many farmers use their kids for work that they're not quite old enough to or that are a little risky, like fooling around with your machete, which is the, the common tool. And that's strictly a function of economics. Right? You use your kids if you don't have the money to pay a contractor, of which there's plenty. You know, there's adult people that do contract labor in, in fields. So the real problem we realized is with child labor is is economics the real one and then there's ignorance and lack of awareness so both of that we've tackled in ghana education awareness raising while at the same time paying rather substantial premiums to farmers and helping them hands-on to uh, renovate their existing orchards and planting new ones in mixed agroforestry so that's the that's the campaign and that chocolate simply symbolizes it and we we know from whom we're buying, right? So we're now, we have four suppliers now, one great women's co-op in Ivory Coast, two other co-ops in Ghana. They're all at different levels. But that's the, the chocolate story, just to symbolize that you can make cocoa beans fairly and, and sustainably, just like the coconut sugar that comes from Indonesia, just a, the, the same fantastic women co-op that has just set their mind on making good raw materials. And I, I have this hunch we may come up with other things in the future. Foods that utilize our regenerative ingredients to remind consumers that there are alternatives and that they taste good. That, that's super important. No, nobody wants to buy a, a crappy chocolate for $5. Right? So it's the, the quality really matters. And then the story behind it matters. And we want those stories to be true. So that's, that's really how we ran. Serendipity took us into cocoa. We had no plans of doing chocolate ever when we started there. Yeah, basically, the chocolate bar is a micro, shows this microcosm of all of the, I mean, you, the, trying to source better palm oil, which is a problematic ingredient, and then embracing regenerative organic practices, which involves agroforestry. And then that led to the cocoa, and then there yep. was an idea, and yep. then there was. Yeah, I mean, it's and then the awareness and the education. I mean, everything is wrapped up in that it's, chocolate bar. It's, it's in there, and of course, we're not stopping there. So when you do mixed agroforestry in the early year, the early years, you plant cassava. Right, cassava is is I think the number four crop on the world. It's a uh, it's carbohydrates for much of the tropics, and you grow it first, so you have revenue 
before the cocoa trees carry. Could, could you define mixed agroforestry? Maybe step back and explain yep, what sure. that concept is. I think that'll help before you dive into what it would look like on the ground. Sure. It's it's the it's a designed it's it's a forest that's designed on on grids to include just a, a diversity of trees whose ecological needs complement each other. That sounds a little theoretical. So in reality, it's a grid where you have cocoa, you have palm, you have and and they need to you need to look at the um, at the at the stories. It's um, it's a um, and what's the right what's the right word here? You have you know you have trees with different heights, and you need to make sure that they don't steal the light from each other. So cocoa handles shade pretty well, so it's at the base floor, and then oil palm is much higher, and then you can fit a lot of trees in between. So that's mixed agroforestry, where you mix trees also with agricultural crops in the early years, such as cassava, ginger, turmeric, and it looks from above. We, we like flying drones over the, the land we have because it just it's a it's a green chaos, but it's not chaotic. It's it's planned, but it's got it's got the sense of a of a planned jungle and on the ground the same. You have alleys in the middle, so you can access, and then you also need to put biomass for mulch. But it's it's just a way of having a rather efficient forest with a high level of di- uh, of, of diversity which is good if you want to get rid of pests and if you want to diversify your income so you don't rely just on a single crop. So you have income, you have crops all year, and you have use for home consumption and you can also export. So that sounds too good to be true. And in reality, it's a lot of work to get this done, to get farmers to go away from a monocrop where you just plant on grids, you know, six by six meters, really nice, to go into something that's much more chaotic, where you have to plant bananas next to the cocoa tree in order to provide for the banana to provide shade to the cocoa in in the beginning. Nobody wants to deal with this. It's a lot of work. After a while, it's beautiful. And after a few years, your yields, your output is great. But to take people there who were just trained to go for monocultures is a lot of work. This is this is where we spend a huge amount of, of time and also um, donor money in order to implement this and roll it out. But if you check, for instance, um, the chocolate of our favorite competitor, Alter Eco, they do the same. They're not that close to the ground as we are, but we've become good friends over that issue. So dynamic agroforestry, we both call it DEF, is really hot. And there's other names for it, but it's the same concept. It's just mixing trees in order to accommodate each other's needs ultimately the benefit must go to the farmer the farmers don't really care so much to to them first and foremost it's productivity and revenue but then there's other benefits that emerge it's a diversity in food so it's mixed agroforestry is a concept that everybody talks about but it's a lot of work that's what we're finding but it's it's beautiful it's just the aesthetics of it is fantastic and that's a core principle in regenerative organic agriculture, which I think it would be important to hear from your point of view, because it's a word that's being used, a phrase that's being used a lot. And I think there's confusion on what it means. And one of the things that Bronner's has been pivotal in is an actual certification for it. So there's clarity and consistency. And, and can you say a little bit more about that and help um, 
any con- clear up any confusion that people might have about what that means? I'll, I'll, I'll try. So <laughs> it's people have argued over this for, for years. So, you know, most listeners will know what, what organic means in reality. It now means you cannot use chemical fertilizers and synthetic pesticides and herbicides in your lands, whether it's field crops or tree crops. That to most people is organic. Originally, organic was meant to be much more. It's just increasing fertility with natural means. And fertility means bring humus, bring carbon back into the soil for all of its benefits. And then diversity was also one of them. All that fell by the wayside. So the organic food you can buy now in supermarkets is mostly just not grown with chemicals. And that's that's all. And I think regenerative agriculture came out of frustration with the limits of this approach. And, you know, there have always been pioneers around to practice things such as um, mop grazing in... In, um, in in dairy production, you know, in livestock, for instance, methods to improve the conditions of the soil and let it putting the carbon that has all been lost to the atmosphere, ultimately the humus, the black stuff in the soil, for that to come back. And there's different techniques by which you can do that: applying compost, plowing less, growing cover crops, are all methods by which you can do that. And that's ultimately. Regenerative agriculture is about that, is just to produce field and tree crops in a way that allows the soil to regenerate. We take this a little broader and the standards, the rock standards, regenerative organic, also included strict requirements on social fairness, on the humans and then animal welfare. So to, to us, that's sort of a framework, a pretty broad and ambitious framework to regulate the production of crops, tree and field crops under regenerative conditions. That's that's the idea. And we, of course, it's going to save the world, but not while I'm still alive. It's just the implementation isn't easy, but there's lots of pioneers and it's so inspiring to see what people do on their fields to try out new methods. And some of it is very innovative. Some of it ultimately doesn't scale or people won't pick it up, but we were just... uh, at a large regenerative farm in Germany. And it's just super inspiring to see younger people just shifting to regenerative, highly mixed crops, um, fantastic innovation in compost production. So all this is, those are essentially labs right now to find methods that can translate into, into the larger scale. And that may be a little easier in developing countries because labor is not as constrained, right? people work more in the field than they do here but there's even people who try to mechanize regenerative so it's really fascinating to see the the innovation and the spirit that has been initiated stimulated through this concept of regenerative and it's it's a it's a buzzword and it will be but there's some really solid action behind it and i honestly i think this is going to be one of the pillars on which humanity hopefully slows down or or prevents disasters through climate change because the the emissions right now and the potential to sequester greenhouse gases that 
agriculture and agroforestry has is is funnily so undervalued right everybody talks about energy yes of course regenerative great but sucking in emissions but at the same time improving the quality of a primary resource that is the soil that is still lacking in the general public discussion and but it's bubbling up and it's really fun to watch that media start picking up and the New York Times writes about it and, and whatnot. It's going to take a long time to translate. But to me, this is one of the hopes that humanity has. The other one is just to do something similar in the oceans. So it's it's aqua permaculture. And if done right, that has similar potential in, in many respects. So there's some really, really cool ideas out there that can help save the planet by just growing plants the right way. To, to put it simply, and that's, that's very inspiring to, to see that. But it's not just about the plants. It's mostly about the people, at least on land. In the water, it's a little different. Because these practices really can sequester carbon, and research has already shown that. And yep. there's also an end they contribute to social justice and fairness yep. and compassion to other species. Yep. And sounds too our- good Sounds <laughs> too good to be true. But it's And, and we're, we're skeptics about anything, but it's really worth trying for, for just many reasons. There, there's five different reasons you, you should do agroforestry, and it's really nice to get people to support it. And it's really nice to see that you, you have more and more friends and colleagues who just really think, wow, dynamic agroforestry, yeah, that's it. And it's, it's pretty nice. So death is hot right now. You'll, you'll find more chocolates claiming pretty soon that, their beans come out of dynamic agroforestry, which is great. Well, you've been involved in dynamic projects in many parts of the world, and you talked about um, learning lessons and um, especially from mistakes. And what is one of your um, biggest lessons you've learned that you carry with you through your work? Oh, it's tried. It's mostly about openness. I, I really think it's, it's just open. Don't go in there with preconceived notions. Be willing to to change your plans on very short notice. And, and, and focus mostly on the people because ultimately that's the only thing you have. That, that's your main, your, your main resource. That, that's what I learned. I, un, I underestimated when I was younger and, and didn't have staff and was an idealist. I thought it's mostly about politics and I underestimated the role of humans. It's all about people. There's nothing else ultimately that's going to make it happen. I think that's my my biggest learning is. And so to to be really nice with your fellow humans, as long as they deserve it, of course, has been one of the biggest lessons is just to focus on on people because if you want to get something done, you better get people on, on board. I, I think that's the one. And then there's just lots lots of other things I've learned, like when you harvest peppermint and, and things you really shouldn't be doing. But I think just thinking of, of people first and how to get them to sign up for your cause, I think that's the biggest one. Well, what are you working on now? You just um, had this great chocolate project. What kind of projects are, are you working on now? It's... It's really rolling out what we have. So there is in, in India, you know, those are 2,500 farmers, six, 7,000 acres where we grow the mint, but the mint is only part of a real dense crop rotation. They grow three crops a year. It's amazing. But their soil has been depleted of humus, the black stuff, over the last few years because they 
just used high doses of nitrogen fertilizer. So our goal there is just to make that again a really nice topsoil with a high humus content. So we've had the first round three years to do this compost production, reduced tillage, but we need to continue doing this. And and we've come to realize that the, the problem they have with groundwater, uh, it's just like in the Central Valley, right? People just oversuck groundwater like crazy. And eventually the groundwater table is going to be so low that you can barely get there with, with your wells. You have to drill increasingly and then it's going to get more expensive to pump. And there we've come to realize, and it's not that tricky, is that a high humus content, everybody knows it, also improves moisture holding capacity. And thereby, if you do that, you also reduce your irrigation demands. They flood, irrigate, and much of their water evaporates. If you get that water to stay in the soil a little longer, you cut your irrigation needs and thereby spare the groundwater. Right? So that's that's a campaign that we're just preparing and are um, looking for funding. And then the other one we're starting in Ghana is the, these these towns in, in Africa, smaller, 10,000 people. They're, they're simple, but they often look like crap because there's plastic waste all over because there's no organized collection. And this has bugged us ever, ever since. And then before the Christmas party, you, you do a plastic run, but then, you know, New Year, you have plastic there again. So we've been thinking, how can you actually collect the plastic and make a use of it? And we're getting closer now and are applying for a project that organizes collection in a fair way. And there's by now already recyclers in Ghana that can turn this into granulate for technical uses. So we're, our goal is to clean up Asum, our hometown in, in Ghana, offering people jobs under fair conditions. It's not the most stimulating work, but the alternative is no work or the really bad working conditions. So as people collect, you separate, then bring it to or sell it to a, a recycler. And there's this concept of offsets or insets in, in our case, right? So people collect a thousand tons of plastic and then companies that use plastic still and many will continue to use plastic forever right because certain things you cannot do in glass for instance and then you can offset essentially the thousand you, you want to minimize your own footprint by using post-consumer recycled plastic which we've done for many years now but you also want to offset the remaining thousand tons of plastic and that you do by removing an equivalent amount under certified conditions from the environment in countries in your host countries and then there's a there's an offset paid to a project that collects and makes it viable because just selling old plastic just doesn't allow you to pay fair wages right so this is the, the next project and if that works we want to do this in india too and we're not the only ones there's other companies that start doing this to minimize or offset their plastic footprint and i think it's a great idea Many people say, no, no, you have to get rid of plastic. Good luck. You know, companies that do use plastic on a large scale, they don't have too many choices. And I prefer if they use the right plastic and then also offset by cleaning up plastic chaos elsewhere on the planet. So th those are two examples of, of things we're engaging in our spare time, so to speak. 
addressing the problem head on and trying to create other benefits through the solution. Yeah, yeah. You, you think you think pretty complex, and that's one thing we've learned certainly is you don't want to just do a project for three years. It's funded. You you want it to be sustainable. This needs to be a business that can stay in business beyond just Dr. Bronner's helping to kick it off. That's ultimately increasingly you just think that way that you want something that can work in the long run and finance itself. And you never know, but you need to think about that when you start a project. Well, we have run out of time, but is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't touched on? Oh, there would be, I I guess we covered the most important stuff. There's so many, I just strongly suggest people read the book and I hope they're entertained. You know, I, I get into the question of are humans good by nature, for instance, you know, last chapter, can't stop before, or I, I talk about, I explain what industrial hemp is like, and just, just funny stories that I've been able to watch over the last, you know, so many years, and I, I hope I pique the curiosity of the listeners to, to, take, a, to take a look. I, I, I hope it's considered authentic enough and just inspires people, and maybe that's the one point I'd like to make. I talk to colleagues here in the industry and they say, oh, this is all great, but how can we do this? And not too many companies are as as radical as as we are, but I'd say at least look at one or two ingredients where you can do something similar, engage on the ground so you have an appreciation even of the fact that conditions are like in developing countries because many people on the left or the right in this country and elsewhere have just very cliche-like ideas about what conditions are on the ground and just the just engaging being on the ground we get visitors a lot now many dr bronner's people know i regularly present just to give people an appreciation of what it's like and i think that is something that any company should at least consider doing and and not just through charity which is great but if they can through trade through engaging with existing say smallholder groups for instance and you can always make mistakes you know and they they may not be that solid at least engaging asking the right question figuring out what their problems are and seeing whether trade can address some of that i i think that's an exercise really really worth worthwhile that's actually one of the messages I'd, i'd like to send out is for small to medium to big companies look at what you can do with your supply chains just be a little selective about it, but take it serious and don't just use it for the storytelling, which has become, you know, the main thing that, that drives marketing nowadays. And nothing wrong with a good story, but it better be true. Yeah, the theme, the value of Dr. Bronner's Treat the Earth Like Home comes through in your stories, wherever you've been, Mexico or Sri Lanka mm-hmm. or Ghana, you treat the place like home and the people like friends and family. And it is, it's a lot of ripple, a lot of ripple effects of that that are hopeful. They are. And it's, it's not as idyllic as it, it may sound. It's, it takes a lot of work and treating people like family. They also need to earn this. Right? This, this is one point I always make. It sounds mean, but it's not, it's, it's not like white, the white guys. Yes, we are as a race responsible for a lot of misery on this planet, but this does not um, 
free people on the ground up from also showing their responsibility. It's mutual. Fair trade needs to go both ways, right? And that that's something that I've I've learned too. Is that you just you just try to meet on on a somewhat level playing field, but it's it's not that we should just do all this out of guilt. That this is not a very good motivation, but rather just look for opportunities to improve what's there. Just look at what's there, and then try to improve it. Always good to keep history in mind. It's it's important, but no point in always just rubbing the history in and say, oh, we feel bad, and this is why we need to just spend so much. That's that's not our main driver. It's just the the conditions are often just miserable or less than perfect, and that's ultimately what you what you want to change. But it takes both sides to do that. Yeah, I think there's great case studies of that. What happens if you show up and confront reality and be mm-hmm. honest? Yep. Yep. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to hear about all these um, wonderful, your work and these stories of hope about cooperation, regeneration. It's been great talking to you today. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity to, to, to tell a little bit about my work. It, it's been a lot of fun and, and a major source of satisfaction in my life. I, I'm not going to do anything else until I die is what I often joke and who knows what happens here. I, I really like this. This is just so meaningful, not just to me. So this discussion about meaningfulness and purpose, it, it just touches upon it and I, I hope it inspires people. Thanks for the opportunity, Susan. Well, I'm Susan Gerlach Yusum and this is the New Books Network. I've been speaking with our guest, Dr. Giro Lazon, about his new book, Honor Thy Label, Dr. Bronner's Unconventional Journey to a Clean, Green, and Ethical Supply Chain. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Susan.